The following is audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you would like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org. So today is a special Sunday for us. We are celebrating our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America, EFCA Church Multiplication Sunday. And I just want to tell you my background, how I ended up in a free church. Um, I was baptized, sprinkled a Presbyterian. I then uh, moved up the street to the Methodist Church. And at the Methodist Church, I was in a wonderful church and had a wonderful pastor, and I met Jesus Christ as my Savior when I was 17. A couple years later, I met a gal by the name of Betsy Emmeline, and she is a Baptist. So I went to the Baptist church because the girls were cuter at the Baptist church. Anyway, um, and then I went to seminary and uh, was introduced to the free church. So I'm a Methodist that was set free, all right? That's just the way it is. I don't really think denominational labels mean too much. I think knowing Jesus is what's most important. But I am thankful to be in a movement called the Evangelical Free Church of America. We believe the gospel, we believe in congregational government, and uh, we are seeking to have an impact around this world. And uh, we have about 1,600 churches or so in America, and uh, we support missions all around the world. We have a president, and um, we're gonna let him speak to you for a few moments about what today is celebrating in the Free Church. Church multiplication is in the DNA of the EFCA. Over the last 20 years, we've seen more than 650 churches planted. But beyond the numbers, it's a reflection of our evangelical heritage and God's heart for the lost. It's through the planting of new churches that the unchurched are reached and the next generation hears about Jesus and diverse communities have an opportunity to hear the gospel. We are trusting God to see a significant number of new churches planted in the years to come. That will happen through the ministry of Reach Network, the church planting network of the EFCA. Reach Network is a diverse group of church planters and leaders and sending churches that have the same mission that we in the EFCA have, to glorify God by multiplying transformational churches among all people. How do they do that? It's through the recruitment of church planters and coaching and training and coming alongside local sending churches so that we could see church planters raised up, churches planted, all to the glory of God. I recently finished the church planting training with the Rich Network, which helped me structure the vision that the Lord has given me to start a network of multilingual, multi-ethnic microchurches in which the focus is the people, not the building. I'm thankful for Reach Network because they encourage us to do ministry in a way that is specifically designed for our neighborhood. Reach Network has pastored the planter. Uh, I get together with a group of pastors weekly uh, just to pray together and to discuss different challenges that we're going through. Whether you're an individual who cares about planting churches or the leader of a church, and you want to see your church get involved with Reach Network in planting churches, I'd encourage you to visit efca.org slash reachnetwork.
So you can find that information on our website and on the Free Church website. Some of you may or may not know that our church was founded in 1880. Friedrich Franzen was a Swedish evangelist, and he came to Denver, and some Swedes met Jesus Christ and planted a church, which downtown was called Belcaro Evangelical Free Church. In the early 90s, our church merged with a Baptist group and moved to this location where we've been since and renamed ourselves as Fellowship Community Church. But since we were founded in 1880, most of the other free churches that are around in the area, some way or another, right, were somewhat started by the inspiration of our founders or perhaps in some cases helped. So it's kind of been an exciting journey. And a few years ago, I ran into this statement that meant a lot to me, and I want to share it with you. God's mission has a church. Uh, God has a mission. He's had a mission from the very beginning, even before creation, that he would save sinners, that he would forgive their sins, that he would cleanse them, that he'd give them a home in heaven and guarantee it, and all those things. That's God's mission. It's been from the very beginning. And in this age, he has a church. And so we often talk about a church having a mission or a denomination having a mission, but God has a mission, and right now he's using a church to rescue sinners, to share with them the forgiveness, the message, to watch their lives be transformed. And he does this through those people that gather in his name, and that's who we are. We're a church. We gather in the name of Jesus. So today, we're going to look at a couple really familiar passages. This is not stuff you've never heard before, but good to echo again. The Great Commission, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the Great Commission. The danger is, in too many churches, it becomes the Great Omission, that we get so focused on entertaining ourselves and pleasing ourselves that we forget there are people who haven't yet met Jesus. And that is not our role to entertain ourselves. Our role is to see that others meet the Lord Jesus. That's why church planning has been such a focus in our denomination and in our church. We don't want to forget those who haven't yet met Jesus. And so I want to impact this for a moment. The context then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Why'd they go to Galilee? They met him in Jerusalem. He showed up there, but he sent them to Galilee. Mary, when she came back and reported that Jesus had arisen from the dead, was commanded by Jesus to tell them to go to Galilee. Now it says when they see him in his glorified, resurrected human body, they worship him. Now, we just sang about the angels falling face down. And that's behind this word worship. It means face down. I mean, they were intently worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ at that moment. And they were falling down in, in homage to him and worshiping him. Imagine seeing the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. When you see him, you'll fall down too. <laughs> That's the beauty of it. We'll worship him, and that's why we do it now, by faith and one day by sight. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. 
I found that amazing to read. Some were doubting. Some were wavering. Some were hesitating. I mean, there he is in his glorified, resurrected body. Now, this verb isn't used very often, but it is used in the story of Peter. After he walked on the water, you remember? And he started to sink in one of the most sincere prayers in the Bible. Help me! Right? To Jesus. And he helps him. And then Jesus says to him, why did you doubt? Why were you doubting? So doubts assail all of us. Let's, let's be honest. I sometimes have doubts. You sometimes have had doubts. And even on that moment, in that moment, when they're seeing the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ, some were doubting. Now, I don't think they were doubting Jesus. I think they were doubting themselves. Take Peter, for instance. You know, his mouth was sandal size. And he always spoke with such courage, and yet he had denied the Lord three times. Think of it. Do you sometimes doubt yourself? Do you sometimes doubt that God could be calling you to do a certain ministry or share a certain word with someone? I think that is pretty typical. But the word of God always dispels our doubts. And so Jesus spoke. He came to them in their doubting. Isn't that, isn't that precious? Don't miss that. Some of them were doubting, and he's still drawing near to them. He'll draw near to you in your doubts. He'll draw near to me in my doubts, just like he did for Thomas. And so we're so blessed that he draws near, and then he makes this incredible statement, all authority, how much? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's already his, that moment. He is declaring he has all that authority. The Father had given it to him. And he has the right and the freedom to rule and reign with justice. Hallelujah. He has all authority, universal authority, heaven and earth. Meditate on that for a moment. He has all authority right now. Did you look at the internet this week? Did you watch the news? I don't care which channel you turn on. It's disturbing. It feels like it's out of control. It feels like chaos is reigning, but it's not ultimately. He is reigning. All authority has been given to him. And he's in control. And we're so blessed. So now then he gives us the command. Therefore... Because I'm in control, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything, everything I have commanded you. Now, as you unpack this command, there's one main verb, and it's not go. It's make disciples. Followers, not just converts, not just those who put their trust in Christ, but those who continue to follow him. See? And that's a process that he talks about here. The verb is only used four times to make disciples. Joseph of Arimathea is called an, a, a, a disciple. It's kind of interesting. In Acts 14 and verse 21, Paul says his mission was to make disciples. 
That's our mission. That's our calling, just as it is. Training not only to know the truth, but to live it out. And it takes time. It's a process. The noun disciple is used 260 times in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. So it's obvious that's what they were doing. That's what Jesus had done. That's what he's commanding us to do. Now, the process involves three steps. The first step is go. That's a participle. It's dependent on the main verb to make disciples. Go. As you go, when you go, wherever you go. And it has some imperative force. We're commanded to go. And they went all over the Roman Empire and changed the empire by the message of the gospel. Then baptizing them is not something you repeat. It happens once. When someone believes on Christ, and that's the pattern in the book of Acts, then they are baptized in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's that outward sign of that inward reality that took place that they put their trust in Christ. And so then they're baptized in water. And then for the rest of your time on the earth, you're going to be taught, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. No, only the commands that we like in our church. No, 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 no. Some commands are hard, aren't they? Some, some commands are, whew, I read them, I look at them, I'm like, oof, man. I heard one preacher say he's not afraid of the things in the Bible he doesn't understand. It's the things he understands too well and doesn't do. Those are the things that bother him. And uh, that's true for us. The word to obey is a very interesting word. It is used 70 times. It sometimes means to guard. In fact, it means in this passage earlier in the chapter, the guards that were watching the tomb. So part of the obeying is guarding the truth, protecting it for the next generation. And uh, that, that is involved. We are to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, according to Ephesians 4.3 that we looked at some time ago. And um, we guard the truth by living it and by obeying it and living it out. When the rich man came to Jesus, he said, what must I do? And, and Jesus said, obey the commands. And he used this term, keep the commands. Of course, the rich man said he had, and Jesus wasn't sure that was so. No, Jesus knew that wasn't so. So he said, go sell everything you got and give it away. Well, sometime soon, I think we'll be looking at that story, kind of considering doing a series in the Gospel of Mark. But these commands are the ones that Jesus gave us. I like the way it's stated here by the Lord Jesus in John 15. If you keep my commands, that's the word, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, same verb, and remain in his love. So there's a connection between obeying and loving. You say you really love the Lord, then obey his commands. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they obeyed, same word, my teaching, they will obey yours also. And this is a great commission. This is the great command for us. I was reading a book by Joseph Stowell. I, I in, really enjoy the ministry of Joseph Stowell. He at one time was a pastor. He was the president of Moody Bible Institute, and he wrote a book entitled Following Christ, Experiencing Life the Way It Was Meant to Be. Okay? In the book, he writes this. The call of Christ to follow means rejecting impulses of control, independence, and self-actualization. I have trouble saying that word. 
it requires us to submit both our wills and our wants to him and his better way. All of us will spend our whole life following. The issue is who or what will we follow? Christ welcomes us to the road less traveled, but the road that is far better in every way. E. Stanley Jones, he was a missionary in India. Some of his writings were very influential with Dr. Martin Luther King. He also was personal friends with Mahatma Gandhi. E. Stanley Jones, very interesting man. This is what he wrote about this subject of following Christ. Listen carefully. Some are in self. They are determined by self-interest primarily. It is the driving force of their lives. To get and to get on for self is the compelling motive. Some are in the herd. (laughs) Before they act, they look around. They don't act. They only react to what the herd does. The roots of their motives are in what will people think. Making self or the herd our God is sin, the chief sin. To be in Christ means to pull up the roots of one's very life from the soil of sin and self and herd and plant them in Christ. He becomes the source of our life, the source of our thinking, our feeling, our acting, our being. This obviously involves self-surrender, not merely the surrender of our sins, our bad habits, our wrong thinking, our wrong motives, but of the very self behind all these. All of these are symptoms. The unsurrendered self is the disease. So the phrase in Christ is not only the ultimate concept, but it demands the ultimate act, self-surrender. The only thing we own is just ourselves. We don't own our money, our property, not even the house we live in, for we will leave it all behind. The only thing we will take out with us is just ourselves. It is the only thing we own. The one thing we own, the self, is deliberately handed back to the giver in an act of supreme self-surrender with words something like this. I can't handle this self of mine. (laughs) Take me as I am. Make me as I ought to be. I give myself and my sins and my problems to you, but myself first and foremost. I have been in myself, now I am in you. We lose ourselves and to our astonishment find ourselves. We live when we live in him. Now that really is discipleship. That really describes the goal that the Lord has for your life and my life. And so there's great comfort at the end of this command. Surely, you know what surely means? Surely, okay? It's going to happen. It is happening. It's a truth right now. I am with you always to the very end of the age. Hallelujah. He doesn't come and go. He comes to stay. He is with any ministry, any person, especially who is intent on making disciples. The the truth of his omnipresence is real. He's everywhere present, but he's really present with those 
who are listening and following and serving him. And that's what a disciple does. And so don't you love these words in Hebrews? Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do for me? Yes, he remains with us. He is especially present. If you were to ask me, Pastor, what is your number one desire for Fellowship Community Church? I would say make disciples. I want to be the best disciple-making ministry we can be, whether it's children or students or our old folks, whatever. And every time, you know, to equip us to be disciple-makers is really at the heart of our ministry. Now, if you want to make disciples, it seems logical that you will look at the model of Jesus. And so I want to go to another passage in Matthew. I'm now in chapter 9, and I'm asking, how did Jesus do ministry? And here we have a passage where Jesus' ministry is described. We'll just take a few moments. Again, it's very familiar. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. First, I want to think about with you the strategy. He went through all the towns and villages. There were no small places for Jesus. Every place was important. And as he went along, even to towns and villages, he was teaching in their synagogues. Now, his focus was on the Jewish people. Later, it would be expanded to the Gentiles. But he is teaching. He is instructing formally and informally. And he's proclaiming. It's a different word. He's speaking out the gospel, the teaching and proclaiming the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, because he's the king. And, and, and when you're under his kingship, you're in the kingdom. Now, there's a sense in which in the future he will come and reign on a kingdom on the earth. But even now, his kingdom is present in those who acknowledge him as king. It's the priority of his message. And how do you get there? By repentance. Repent of your sins. You believe on Christ. Then you can say the kingdom is near. It's, it's, it's right here. And one day he's coming. He's also healing every disease and sickness. He has a ministry of healing, and, and it's, it's, it's showing and demonstrating that he is the Messiah, just as he said. Uh, when John the Baptist was in prison and had some questions about Jesus, he um, sent some of his disciples to Jesus. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This is Jesus declaring that he has fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies, and he is demonstrating that he is the Son of God by his power to do miracles. 
And that's, that's the point. And that's what he wanted to communicate to them. This was his strategy. Now, what about his compassion? He saw the crowds. He looked them over. He saw the individuals in the crowd, and he saw the crowd as well, right? Isn't that precious? Oh, sometimes I just wish, Lord, I just wish I had better eyesight. Doctors tell me I'm developing cataracts, and I believe it. But I need the vision of God. You need the vision of God to see people, to really see them, to listen to them. So he saw the crowds, and he had compassion on them. It's a very strong word. It's, it's an emotion-packed word. It's, it's not used that often, but it's used 12 times, and they're all in the Gospels, and most of the time they refer to Jesus. And when Jesus had compassion like this and was moved emotionally, he got involved. He, he, he did miracles. He forgave sin. He heals blinds. He, and, and I don't know, I asked the staff this week, what do you think about, we're singing the song, God Weeps. God Weeps? Is that, does that mean he's weak? How does it hit you when you say, my Savior weeps? Doesn't that comfort you? Doesn't that encourage you? He's been here and done this. <laughs> He's been on the planet. You know, he knows what it's like. He knows how difficult it is. Imagine, he came from a perfect place and then came here. <laughs> we don't have that pre-birth or pre-conception time, but he did. And he had compassion. And he wept. And what vivid descriptions are here because the reason he's compassionate and is because they were harassed and helpless. The verb harass means to be beat up. Feel beat up this week? Something happened at work? Something happened in your home? Maybe something happened at church. You just felt beat up and bruised? Weary, worn out, troubled, dejected, annoyed? All those things are in the word. And helpless. Thrown to the wind, cast out by force, oppressed. The ESV says helpless. The New American Standard says downcast. The King James says scattered abroad. Like sheep without a shepherd. I had a little robin in my neighborhood. Evidently, this robin had fallen out of the nest. And I don't know if it was mom or dad, I can't tell, but they came with worms, and this poor little bird's there squealing and squealing, and some of the other birds are around. And last night I went to get the mail, and now the little bird was out on my driveway, and guess who showed up? A big old cat, just staring him down. And I talked to that cat. I said, cat, it's no contest, all right? His, this bird is helpless. So what? You can do whatever you want. But, you know, can't you have some compassion for this poor little birdie? So I chased the cat away, but I'm sure he came back because the bird's no longer there. Sheep without a shepherd are just a target for the enemy. But with a shepherd, like Dad was telling us, we have strength, we have protection, we have all that we need. Hallelujah. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
I'm going to lack for nothing. See? But when Jesus looked on the crowds, that's what he saw. So he gives this vision. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. There's plenty of opportunities, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. It's not that hard to be a laborer, a worker. God has all kind of giftedness and strengths and weaknesses, and he's got ten talent people and one talent people and five talent people, and he uses all of us, and he sends us. And we have that blessing of his commission. So let us close with a couple moments of prayer for the Evangelical Free Church of America, our denomination, that we will be a denomination that stays true to the doctrine that we believe and that we do plant healthy churches. We have church plants in our own district and we are going to pray of our opportunity. So just take a quiet moment, look at the list as God leads you and pray with us that churches will be multiplied. Lord, I thank you that you led me to be a pastor of an evangelical free church of America. I thank you, Lord, for President Kevin. Thank you, Lord, for our district superintendent, Barry. But these men were put in place to serve and help us as a local congregation and help us, Lord, to be true to the call of making disciples and be with reach global, around the world, and, and, and the outreach in our own country. Bless this work, we pray in Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen and amen. As we get ready for the Lord's Supper today, I wanted to remind you, and I'm not going to sing it, but Philip Bliss wrote an incredible song that really describes what we're seeking when we take communion. Jesus said we do this in remembrance of him. So we look back at the cross and we remember what he did there. But we also are reminded of what he's doing now and what he's going to do in the future. So this song that Bliss wrote so long ago, uh, he is from Pennsylvania. He actually died at a very young age trying to rescue his wife in a train accident. He had escaped, and he went back into the train to rescue her, and they both died. And they actually left behind at that time two sons, George and Philip. They were age four and age one at that time. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he, full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished, was his cry. Now, see, now, what's he doing now? Now in heaven, exalted, high, interceding for you and me. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring. 
then and new, this song will sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. As we come to the Lord's table today, I want to remind you that this is a table. He does the inviting. I don't do the inviting. He did it. And all who believe are welcome to come. And if you don't believe yet, why not? Why not today? Why not make today the moment you say, you know what? This, this stuff makes sense. I need a Savior. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's the promise of Scripture. And that's the gospel. So when we gather, we're not gathering because we're so worthy. No, we're gathering because Jesus is worthy, right? We're honoring him. We're remembering him until he comes. And it's a testimony of our faith in the gospel that we take this bread and we take this cup, the symbols of his body and his blood. So let's bless these and then we will, we will scatter them together. And Eunice is kindly agreed to play the, just the music of Hallelujah, What a Savior. So if you want to sing quietly, you're allowed to. Okay. Dear Lord, we ask you to bless this bread, the symbol of your body, broken and given for us. Lord, please bless this bread as we take it today. And Lord, bless this cup. Lord, how we thank you for the cup of the blood that cleanses us from every sin. Lord, we are so blessed that you died and it is finished. Hallelujah, what a Savior we proclaim as we take this bread and take this cup. Please bless it to us today. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen and amen. You've been listening to audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you'd like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org.